Boys. We're back with another very special stay-at-home self-quarantine episode of the Brando Cast. Today, maybe for the second or third time on this uh, particular show, Graham, I'm ceding the high ground to a man. People, Few people know more about rock and roll than me, but I got to guess today that does. He is a music industry veteran. He is a journalist, and he is a published fucking author. Most importantly, he's got two fantastic goddamn books out there, co-written with the legendary John Doe from the band X, Under the Big Black Sun, and More Fun in the New World. I think he's got a podcast or two out there as well. Oh, you stop. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you today Mr. Tom DeSavia. What's happening, brother? Thanks for having me on, man. I am so very excited that you're here. You know, the other night we had uh, we had Tom on Rock Tales, my show with Tom and Zappa, which is on Sirius XM Volume Channel 106, Thursdays at 6 p.m. And uh, all you did was crush it on Rock Tales. Tom came on to talk about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, maybe to talk me down off my ledge, my Iron Maiden ledge, uh, because that's all I care about right now is Iron Maiden getting into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But today I got Tom just to myself, and I don't have to share him with Amit or Richard Jeltinga or anybody else. And we we are going to nerd out today. Yes. Is this like is this like the Shark Week of your shows? This like lose ratings week. (laughs) What's that thing where they like you bring up you bring an ugly date to a party? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, whatever that's called. Is this the radio version of that? There's nine hundred thousand podcasts out in the world. Most of them a long con twice. I've been on podcasts with you in a week. I'm expecting a big metaphorical or literal pie in the face by the end of this thing. (laughs) You know, Sirius is supposed to be radio, but it it does feel like more like a a podcast. But this is a straight up podcast. So but hopefully it'll see the light of day because I want people to hear this because today (laughs) we're going to talk about one of my favorite bands. But I know it's a band that um I don't know. I think you've made a dollar or two being a fan of the band X. Yes, I have. I bought. I got. I got a couch. <laughs> I, I was. I was saying it to John. I used. I. I all I, since I was thirteen. I've loved this band so much. And at the end of it, I got a couch. It's a nice couch. I got a couch. You got a couch from John Doe. No, from like our books, and we did that. And when everything was done, paying everyone else off, I bought a couch of two bucks. Are you wearing a replacement shirt? Indeed, I am. I am. God, that is a that is a pleased to meet me shirt on. It sure is. It's a it's not OG. I bought it when funny enough, when they did those uh two or three palladium shows a few years back, probably about uh, probably about eight years now or so. And in fact, Doe opened one of the shows and I got tickets the night he didn't open. And he was supposed to open both, but he had done he had made a commitment to play at some small party in Joshua Tree, and he's a man of his commitments. So I think I saw St. Vincent or somewhere. It was good. It was good. Uh I was there both nights. What a fantastic show. I have I have a feeling that you and I have been in the same room. Undoubtedly. So many times. Are you here? Are you a local guy originally? I've been here for 30 fucking years. Okay. All right. Fair enough. What part of LA are you? Well, right now I am talking to you from a lo- uh, an undisclosed location, which is about, about two minutes from Little Tony's Pizza in North Hollywood. Oh, but, Bunker. Okay. But for the most for most of my time uh, in LA, I've been in Hollywood, Silver Lake, Los Feliz. I'm a proud um, I'm a proud Valley guy. Born, live in Sherman Oaks, seven eight one eight tattoo on my arm. So you are Valley strong. Oh yeah, it's the best. It's the best. <laughs> I have to say this, yeah. and I think you will understand this. The great one eight. 
when one is obsessed with quote unquote cool aesthetics, yes. you know, you have to live in Echo Park, Los Feliz, Atwater Village, Frogtown, Eagle Rock, Los Feliz, blah, 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 blah. But when you give up and you realize that there's nothing to that, you come to the valley. Yeah. I don't have to go to the store by creme fresh all the time and a and a can record. It was just I, I lived I did I did my time there. I lived in Silver Lake in Los Angeles for years and years and years. And then I was like, I'm from the valley. I'm going back. I crawled back. I begged the valley's forgiveness. They let me back in. And guess what? No more creme fresh. It's okay. You can get back with it. It's all it's all it's all good. But we can move. We can breathe. You know, we can there's parking. Uh it's yeah. easy to get around. It, you you drive through uh, best neighborhood. Mexican food, the best Thai food. Uh, it, it just it's fantastic. You got it's not the it's not the valley of my youth. There's no Malibu Grand Prix anymore or Farrell's, which was a dangerous ice cream shop. But yeah, you want sushi? You, you're going to come here. Was Farrell's the place? Because I think there was a Farrell's in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where I grew up, where you could get like a, a Sunday with 35 scoops of ice cream. Yes, and and it and it came the thing though, and they'd bring it around. They, it was in a giant um, sterling tub, and they'd, they'd they'd run around like they were a fire engine, and then they'd bring it to. But it had those, um, you know, those little plastic animals of the seventies. We'll call them that were really sharp and had like sharp little legs, and they're just. And, and so it was called the zoo. So this this thing was loaded up. It was like lawn darts for your mouth. And so you just get this thing and you just be pulling like slivers of plastic, like monkey or tiger out of, out of the roof of your mouth. You'd be bleeding all over the place, but it was fantastic. It was, yeah, it was just, you know, Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> no, no, it was all about ferals. Okay, and it had a, a rag timey uh, aesthetic yeah, too, yeah, right? Exactly. It was like, let's go back to the 1800s when times are simpler and you could say share a shake. And yeah, it was fully like, um, yeah, old timey ragtime. Which I know ragtime wasn't the 1800s, but for the sake of this 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 podcast, can we go with that? A hundred percent. Can we make up facts about music? Uh, that that's all we're... Actually... Okay. Well, I, it, by the way, we're going to talk about X today. And and if you... Cool. I, all I've done is I've just done the, the, the most basic version of their history. Really the classic 80s sort of version of X. I wouldn't dare to bring up stories that might be wrong. And you, for the first time, I think I have a guest who can fill in some of the blanks uh, that that might be that I might leave out. So I'm going to allow you to to pick up the ball and run with it anytime you want. But let me just say this: I just need you to know that um, I was kicked out of Silver Lake for being too old. Um, I was (laughs) happens to all of us, buddy. I I know. I but it was weird because I was accosted by a, a lawyer as I was walking my dog around the Silver Lake Reservoir, and he literally said to me, "Sir, you're too old and fat to be here." And the next thing I know, I'm in a courtroom downtown. And, um, you know, the case was tried against me. They pulled out my record collection, which included X albums, uh, but a lot of Dio made it in Saxon. They held up uh, Saxon record Power and the Glory, and they literally said to the jury, we can't have this kind of trash in Silver Lake. So that's why I'm talking to you from uh, an undisclosed location by Little yeah, it, Tony's Yeah, no, it's like Logan's Run. I mean, they, they, I got out. I got out with the skin of my teeth. It was, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like going there every once in a while, but I don't want, I don't need to spend $45 on a, on a homemade, you know, pop tart anymore. <laughs> like these places make their own pop tarts, which I'm sorry to all you restaurants struggling out there. I apologize. Cause I'm, I'm rooting for all of you, but you know, it's better than a homemade pop tart, a fucking pop tart. 
<laughs> you know, if I tried to make you a Big Mac, it wouldn't taste like a Big Mac. Why am I going to struggle to make you a Big Mac? It's cheaper. It's, you know. Quick tangent. You know. Can, I t- can I give you a quick tangent on a Big Mac? Yeah, go. Like once or twice a year. And I wish we had one in the 818. The oyster in Eagle Rock. The only reason to live in Eagle Rock. Yes. They make a thing called the Big Macs. And it's their gourmet version of the Big Mac. And it's just, it's all the exact same ingredients except fresh, high quality ingredients. And I promise you, you will bite into it. If you love the Big Mac in the 70s, as I did, you will cry. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, it's funny. I went, I hadn't been to McDonald's, honestly, since a really awful, awful thing happened to me in about 15 years ago. And since it's COVID and the world's ending, one day about, Two months ago, I was like, fuck it, I'm going to McDonald's. And I got a Big Mac and a cheeseburger and some fries and an apple pie. And um, I forgot how, like, loaded with, like, a complete, like, shaker of salt everything is. And it's the opposite of kids. Kids like things that are loaded with sugar and salt. And I was just eating, and it was just like a salt lick. It was fantastic. And then I, I, and I cried, and awful, awful interior things happened. But it was, it was worth it. And, I mean, other, look, other people are baking bread. And doing, you know, learning, learning to love their kids again. And I'm, I'm revisiting McDonald's. So that's been my contribution to the, the whole pandemic. True or false, the Big Mac was bigger in the 70s and early 80s. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Not just because we were smaller. Right. Absolutely. It was giant. I it's swear like, to God it was. Yeah. I know we were small, but yeah. I swear to God it, they were, it was bigger. It was better. And you know what? And the other thing I did, uh, and I, I think the kids now say, sorry, not sorry. In the middle of my ultimate, I'm, I'm, I live alone with my dog, sadness of this pandemic about probably about five, six months ago, I found like one of the only two LA left uh, Arby's. And one was, I think it was in Reseda or I can't remember what it was. It might've been Tarzana. And I found a DoorDash that would deliver to me and they brought me a whole bunch of Arby's and it was just fantastic. It was just fantastic. And I think I think Arby's has got a real bad rap. It's just a good meat sandwich. <laughs> so, um, horsey ah. sauce. They call it horsey sauce. It's adorable. It's good. You put the you put the latke in there. I know they don't call it the latke. You put the latke in the sandwich, you put the horsey sauce and the, the Arby's sauce on top, and it's just it's I don't know. But what where else are you gonna get the Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman glasses? And, you know, and the Muppet glasses. I mean, when right. I mean, and I don't mean glasses like that you wear on your face, kids. I mean, <laughs> real deal glasses you can drink out of that you had to have as a kid when Arby's had collector's edition glasses. Holy Christ balls. I think we've just completely reinvented your podcast to be hey, remember, remember when Big Macs were big and we used to get, get glassware with like yeah, yeah. I had I had I had, a, I had Happy Days glassware from uh, I think it was Burger King or Carl's. I can't remember who it was from. Fuck yeah! Well, it, it's we're turning the uh, the podcast from mansplaining into Gen explaining. <laughs> so that's what we're gonna do. All right, let's get into it because my guest today just knows everything in the world about this particular band. So without further ado. X is an American punk rock band formed in Los Angeles, California back in 1977. The original members are singer Exine Cervenka, singer and bass player John Doe, guitarist Billy Zoom, and drummer DJ Bonebreak. The band released seven studio albums from 1980 to 1993. After a period of inactivity during the mid to late 90s, X reunited in the early 2000s 
And they were still touring before this goddamn pandemic. They are considered to be one of the most influential bands of their era and are celebrated for their unique mix of punk, R&B, Americana, and rockabilly music. In 2003, X's first two studio albums, Los Angeles and Wild Gift, were ranked by Rolling Stone as being among the 500 greatest albums of all time. The band has also received an official certificate of recognition from the city of L.A. in acknowledgement of its contribution to Los Angeles music and culture. And, as I mentioned before, they made Silver Lake cool before you did kids. Okay, Tom, the floor is yours. Tell me about your love of X. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty simple. I grew up at, um, in Chatsworth, California, which is kind of the Tempe, Arizona of, of the valley. <laughs> and uh, there wasn't anything to do, and we didn't have an air conditioner. We had a swamp cooler. And I was just, I, I, was, I was absolutely the, the, the product of the great American radio, and, and I was obsessed with records. My brother and sister are 12 and 14 years older than me. They weren't really allowed to buy records, so by the time they found this sort of side hustle, so by the time I was like, six or so i had based the basics because they'd bring them home they'd buy them for me and i was just upset i became obsessed with records the first thing i absolutely became obsessed with is as everyone should was the beatles and uh became a beatle fanatic and and uh and do credit uh the first punk song i've ever heard as uh, helter skelter and i will fight anyone on that someone asked me that once and it was, it was like oh helter skelter it had the same effect it scared me and didn't know what it was about wasn't that nice and there's a bunch of murders right by where I grew up in Chatsworth and Spawn Ranch. So I wasn't allowed to listen to it. So it was forbidden. And so it was great. But, uh, but then I, you know, sort of just became obsessed with the radio. And I loved all the hit stuff that was on the radio. And my big brother was listening to everything from, you know, The Doors to Black Sabbath to, you know, Credence and, you know, all the stuff you're supposed to be listening to, Zeppelin. And uh, he had this obsession with Linda Ronstadt. And so when I was a little kid, like about six or seven years old, I got one of her records and just fell absolutely in love with her and learned those records were treasure maps. It was like, who's Neil Young? Who's Lowell George? Who's Elvis Costello? You know, and that's how I found songwriters. And then when I hit 13 years old, I, I, I made this, these friends in high school that were sort of the bad kids. And, um, and this one girl who was the one true punk of the girl, the group, this girl named Lynn, I can't recall the last name. She had all those, these records, bands like Christian death and X and, all this really, really, really groovy stuff, all the Bowie records. And, you know, she was just that gateway drug. And I remember listening to X and it completely uh, confused me because it didn't sound like anything I was hearing on the radio. Couldn't understand. I'd not never really heard, aside from maybe an Everly Brothers here, here and there, I never really heard uh, Harmony as lead vocal. And that completely confused me. And, and then you had this, these two voices that didn't, it sounded like they would ever go together and somehow they did. And, and somehow I think it was that, that it, you could edit out any of this you want, but about 13 was the same time I kind of discovered weed and what weed does, does you to 13 when you don't know what it's going to do at all. And then you sort of mix it in X record. It's like, okay, this is cool. And you know, it literally, I say this, it sounds very dramatic, but it completely rewired my brain. It was sort of like everything I thought I knew again at the tender age of 13, but I'd grown up. I was never interested in anything but music. I wasn't interested in sports. I wasn't interested in baseball cards. I wasn't interested in GI Joe dolls. I, I, you know, I'd watch some Saturday morning cartoons and play with my Legos and listen to albums. That was about it. And so 
when I heard X, it just melodic, but then it wasn't. And, and, and I didn't understand half what they were singing about. And I, and, and it sounded angry and, and, and it just, it like, you know, like the, the snake bite, you know, it literally got in, it just, it, it freaked me out. And so, you know, and then in those days there was no, obviously any streaming. So you'd only hear the records that your buddies had. So we just listened to Los Angeles like crazy. And then when Wild Gift came out, that was my first X album. And it was a little poppier, you know, once over twice and, and those tunes on it. And it was, and I just, I just dug it so much. And I would just stare at that album cover. And then I just became obsessed and then finally got to see him. I was 15 and I, I, I befriended a couple of mods at a record store called Blue Meanie that was a famous record store in the, in the Valley. And I befriended these two mods named uh, Lance and Jeff who worked there. And I, I used to hang out this record store so much they'd let me kind of work for records. So I'd literally stay there for like eight hours. I was 15. I was having a time of my life and getting turned on to bands like The Jam and Squeeze and just all this British stuff I didn't know about because it wasn't on the radio. I was a Niccolo fanatic. And um, so these these two mods invited me to go see my favorite band X who were playing at the country club, which was a converted save on pharmacy uh, drugstore in the Valley. And it was an all ages uh, place, obviously. And so we went there and we smoked the aforementioned pot. I had no idea what I was going to. I'd been to concerts at this point. I'd been going to concerts since I was pretty young. My brother took me to my first Ronstead concert when I was 10. And, um, and then been to see like all those kind of new wave bands, the Stray Cats and the you know Boomtown Rats, all those bands. And I'd never been to a punk show, and figured it would be kind of the same. You know, I'd, I'd get a soda pop and a, some popcorn. And I was wearing, um, I remember really vividly, I was wearing this um, Argyle sweater I'd gotten for Christmas. The show was like in January or February. It was still really cold out, and I was real proud of the sweater. It was like a May Company. Argyle sweater. It wasn't a cool vintage one and it wasn't cool at all. It was just like, and I wore it because it had gone over pretty well at the Stray Cats concert. And I figured that was my, that was my going out in the town sweater. And I remember vividly because I put it on and um, we walked into just hell into this club and, <laughs> and everyone was, and my, my mod friends obviously looked cool and they had really nice slick back hair and they were white t-shirts and jeans and bringing in their little buddy wearing a sweater and and uh it just it just didn't go over and, and and right away i could hear people like making fun of me you know and it wasn't just in my head i was wearing a argyle sweater to a punk show you know and so i got in there and i realized in, immediately like i didn't belong there and uh i just remember pressing my i could still feel it i was pressing into the back wall so hard and I, it was that thing you do like the first time you get drunk when you go sweet merciful jesus if you get me out of here I will never go to a punk show again. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I was miserable. And I was stoned out of my mind on like the cheapest Valley weed. There was sort of a stolen car involved too, that we didn't know it was a stolen car. My friend took his mom's car. And so there's all this drama going on and other people might've been on other substances. And I was you know 15. And, and so anyway, at one point that movie moment happened and everything, just all I could do was, see a scene hanging on her on her microphone and caterwauling this these sounds that weren't musical but they sure the fuck were and it was just amazing and then and it was really like her and obviously for anyone that's seen x billy zoom was just a complete you know sight to behold john's up there the coolest guy in rock and roll and and dj bonebrank who's 
playing drums. Like I, I didn't know what was happening again. And I, I, there was that moment where it was just like, Oh, and everything got lost. I just got focused on that show. And I was just like, again, you know, like I said earlier, the poison seeped in. I was just like hooked and went, Holy shit, there's a world out there. And these people know about it. And I somehow got brought in by my cooler friends and, and cut to you writing a book with John Doe, which is fucking crazy. I mean, if you could time travel and talk to that kid after the show, just, oh, just be like, dude, just chill out. Just keep breathing. It's all going to work out. There were so many. And it's funny. By the time we did it, because a lot of people ask that question. By the time we did it, I had been buddies with John for about a decade. Mm-hmm. And so that part felt okay. You know, I mean, still to this day, every once in a while, like I'll be talking to him. I'm like, holy shit, I'll become a 13 year old and go like, Jesus Christ. You know, like you really, you really like formed my brain for, not for worse, for better. But when we started to do the book, which literally I tried to get him to do for 20 years and then for 20 years at that point, I'd met him in, uh, in 1996 when I was at Electra and I was doing, I, I asked them to do a, um, I want to do an ex anthology. And they said yes, and so I did this thing called Beyond and Back, which was like an ex uh, best of, sort of with demos and live stuff. And so one by one, I started to call the band to get them involved in this thing, and got to know the. And that was the first time Billy came back into the fold, uh, and they did their first show together shortly after that on, to promote that album. But somehow through it, John and I like really just hit it off. It was, it was that weird thing, but in those, those beginning like five years you've seen like raiders of the lost ark with the girls in the classroom with the you're know, just blinking with like love you on their eyelids while they're, <laughs> they're talking it was just that i just yeah. at, at lunch with them and i think and now if i've known him so long he's just used to it i think he just kind of tunes out when he gets the the star trek people in and he's he's cool with it he loves it but and then was just like you know we got to write this book got to write this book and then he came up with the idea he didn't want to write a book and he certainly didn't want to write a john doe or an x book and sort of claim all of la so he came up with this idea of it being a, you know, a oral history of, you know, sort of, we, we, we both loved um, uh, the New York book. I'm just trying to blank. It's, it's fucking brilliant. Um, please kill me. Uh, yeah, please kill me. The Legs McNeil book. The Legs McNeil book. Yeah. Which we loved. And, and in an oral history, and John had the idea of instead of doing it sort of in the way they did, it was to assign chapters to people. And, and so, of course, you know, it was a, it, it was a John Doe book. You know, I mean, let, let every listener know if, if so they don't already, I am the oats of this duo. It's, it's you know, to, to, to John's Hall. And so the reason this book got published, the reason this book got made, the reason we had the contributors we did is because John came in and said, oh, yeah, we could call you know, Rollins in to do this. We call Dave Alvin in to do this. We call, you know, uh, Jane Whedlin in to do this and Charlotte Caffey in to do this. And so it was a blast, man. It was a blast. And we, we kept it at two books because we, we just did one. We didn't think it would do anything. And then it sort of took off and it did all right. And and so we just sort of arbitrarily, just to fit it into a book, John came up again with the idea to make it the first uh, five years of punk. And so 77 to 82, and we'd sort of frame the book in that. And then uh, when it did well, we kind of went, well, it was, there was five more years. And so that's just how we wound up with these two books. And we had such a great time doing it. We spent so much time together, both on the road and just staying, him crashing, hearing us writing the books that it went so, so well. We're like, let's not ruin it. And so everyone's while it's like, it's kind of deciding you have enough kids where we're just like, okay, that was enough. 
we did. We wrote them. We had these two beautiful pieces of history. Let's stop. And we, you know, and and by this point, we've forgotten all the pain and the deadlines, everything like that. And every once in a while, I'll be like, yeah, it'd be fun to write a book with John again. X was founded by bassist singer John Doe and guitarist Billy Zoom. Doe brought his then poetry writing girlfriend Exine Cervenka to band practices, and she eventually joined the band as a vocalist. Drummer Bonebreak was the last of the original members to join after leaving another local group, a group called The Eyes. Much of X's early material had a very distinct rockabilly edge. Doe and Cervenka co-wrote most of the group's songs, and their slightly off-kilter harmony vocals served as the group's most distinctive element. X's first record deal was with the independent label Danger House, for which the band produced one single, Adult Books, back with We're Desperate in 1978. A flag bearer for the local L.A. punk scene, and well known for their fierce live shows, X eventually signed a larger independent label, Slash Records. Los Angeles, the band's first album for Slash, was released on April 26, 1980. That album was produced by Doris keyboard player Ray Manzarek and includes a cover of the 1967 Doris song, Soul Kitchen. The album was reviewed very positively right out of the gates. Ken Tucker wrote in Rolling Stone that Los Angeles is a powerful, upsetting work that concludes with a confrontation of the band's own rampaging bitterness and confusion. And Robert Criscow of the Goddamn Village Voice wrote that the band's outlook and songs make a smart argument for a desperately stupid scene. Now, I have two things I want to say real quickly. I have said on this podcast so many times that it is so it is so important for young folks to have that older brother or sister or older kid in their life that is a force that says, here's the Ramones, here's Led Zeppelin, here's Iron Maiden, here's the Damned, here's the Jam, whatever it is. I mean, it is so important to have that. I don't know, this is super gen explaining, because I imagine now that kids can sit down at a computer and have access to everything on the planet within 30 seconds, but then you had to find it, and you needed those Sherpas in your life just as you had. So yep. I just wanted to throw that in because I just love hearing you talk about that. Now, the other thing that I want to hear about, I want to hear about Chatsworth in the late 70s and early <laughs> 80s. I want you to just let me know what was going on in the Deep Valley. Well, in the Deep Valley, we moved We moved in the late 70s to Thousand Oaks in the early 80s. Uh, I just remember it was like all dusters and El Caminos and, and, and cheap weed and making Long Island iced teas that we didn't know that was what we were making, just taking a little bit of each, or suicides, what do you call them, when you take just a little bit of booze out of everything. There was nothing to do. There's nothing to do. And with in Chatsworth, I think there's this, there's this point, almost every kid that grew up in sort of our era, you just have this moment where you just become a dick, too. You just become kind of a bad kid. <laughs> and and I just go like, I don't know when it happened, because like one day I was sitting there, you know, just, you know, literally playing with my Legos, being a really nice kid. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, all of a sudden there's drugs and there's, there's, there's punk rock and there's, Oh Jesus. And there's, they're cruising up and down, um, Van Nuys Boulevard. So I'm going to go ride with my cousin who's drunk and driving his car up and down. Boulevard. And it was blast. It was so much fun, but there, there wasn't a whole lot to do except to go to like Malibu Grand Prix and, and, you know, ride bikes and ride skateboards and, you know, do all the things I guess, you know, every kid does everywhere, but it, not everywhere. The, so the weird thing is because I'm a teenager and well, we, my parents, my mom moves us to Albuquerque, New Mexico in 1980. So I'm 
13 years old in the fall of 1980. My perception of L.A. and the Valley is completely informed by uh, movies and television shows. Right, right, right. You know, I, for some reason, I think Poncho John live in, in the marina. Um, I think Valley Girl, <laughs> I think Valley Girl and Fast Times at Ridgemont High are canon for how the Valley is. You know, uh, Valley Girl was such a fucking huge movie for me. Um, because I was starting to love that music as well. Yep. So the idea of that Valley girl going over the hill into Hollywood and to going to a club that's kind of based on the mask and seeing the plimsolls, you know, my, I was already going, I want to be that Nicholas cage guy. I want to be Fred. I want to be Cameron dies character. My buddy, Cameron, Cameron dies shout out to, to Fred. Um, but you know what I mean? Like the, the world gets yeah. their information about the San Fernando Valley from because every other television show is set in the valley. It's funny you said that. Well, and it's funny because I didn't get on a plane. I always joke that I didn't get on a plane until I was 19, and then I kind of never got off a plane. I started traveling for work all the time. But when I was a kid, my mom was terrified of flying, so we'd just take our Brady Bunch trips in the Country Squire station wagon, you know, and we'd, we'd go to Palm Springs a lot or we'd go to San Diego. And so I didn't know... I knew about New York because my whole family was from New York. My mom was from Philly. My folks lived in the Bronx. And so I knew from pictures and from movies and from TV, I had a sense of what New York was. And I grew up in a really East Coast household. And then I grew up, like I said, kind of surrounded by, you know, we'd be watching the Brady Bunch, be like, oh, there's the drugstore that's down the street. Oh, there's, you know, there's Roscoe. Or there's, whenever they do an exterior, we'd go to the Brady Bunch house, which was on dealing between Vineland and Tahunga. Boom. You're good. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's three minutes for me right now. It's sort of like, you know, there, it, it's that thing where I, I didn't really, I couldn't really comprehend there was another world outside, meaning that I thought every place was sort of just like this. It was just longer, you know, it just like went on. I didn't know about regionalism. You know, it wasn't until, you know, I, I really started to travel that I got the sense of it. I, you know, and I was, I didn't pay attention in school. And it wasn't until I started to drive through those areas, I got the sense of the Civil War, the the, the last one. But um, it was funny. I remember thinking that as a kid, like, oh, you know, there's record stores everywhere and there's concerts everywhere. And I remember like my brother taking me to the Universal Amphitheater when I was 10 to see Linda Ronstadt in a Cub Scout uniform. And I just thought that's what every 10 year old did. You know, like I said, we grew up kind of lower middle class, but it, everything was there. And, you know, Hollywood. That's that a point, legendary Linda Ronstadt concert, by the way. Oh, her yeah. in that you know, Cubs outfit. And my brother, Tony, if you're listening, I'm going to call you out because I think that he gave me a beer. He gave a 10 year old a beer. <laughs> I've never been to a concert. I was just on there and it was like, you know, Jagger was in the audience. And, and you know, I forget who all these people came out and. And I was just like, yeah, my brother's telling me who Mick Jagger is. I was that young. He's like, you know, sort of thing. But it was amazing. But I remember thinking, like, all the things that were easily at at, at reach, like these really cool record stores and, you know, K-Rock, you know, alternative yeah. radio, um, all these things that were sort of seeping in. I, I just kind of assumed, you know, I mean, the ultimate in privilege, I guess. You go, the world has access to this stuff. You know, I just didn't know. No. Me and Albuquerque, the, I mean, the amazing thing is, so I'm 53 right now. So again, 13, 1981, I see Van Halen in 1980, I see Van Halen in 1981. 
It was easy to go to uh, to concerts in Albuquerque because you could take the bus. I've said this on the podcast a thousand times. Go get a beer if you want to take a break and and right. and not hear me talk about Albuquerque concert going. But it's important because you know we we got all we got was metal, right. which is amazing. But they all came to the to the one rodeo arena in the middle of town on the state fairgrounds. So we got ACDC, Van Halen, Judas Priest, Dio, Maiden, all that kind of stuff. We didn't get the big national acts. Right. The, the Who, they're not going to come to Albuquerque, New Mexico. The Rolling Stones, David Bowie, you know, they're, they're just not going to stop there. Um, punk rock was really hard to access in Albuquerque, New Mexico. You could kind of see what it was through like little glimpses on Night Flight on USA or like a feature on Tony Hawk and Thrasher magazine. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But only the most way out kids, in my experience in 1980, 1981, 1982, only the most way out kids in Albuquerque, New Mexico are listening to punk rock. And it seems like they're just, they're actually mailing they're getting mail-ins from SST records and listening right. to stuff that way. It was so hard to access, but you, you know, you go to see X at the country club in Reseda in 1982. Right. When is the first time that you go like into Hollywood and go to oh, a show at the palladium or the, or then, I mean, it was then, then it was as much stuff I could get into. That was all ages, which wasn't okay. a lot. It was a ton of country club which is amazing. Um, there's a place called uh, Perkins Palace in Pasadena. There was a club called The Palace in Hollywood. It was fantastic, which I forget what it's called now. It's right across from Capitol. It's the, it's right. the Avon. or the, It's the Avalon, the Avon, Avalon, Avalon. The, the bullshit. Avalon. It's the bullshit it's, now. It's the Palace. Uh, there's the Palomino, yeah. which is a whole other story because I fell in love with Cowpunk, which would, it was called then, you know, but like sort of the, the, the rootsier side of things. And the, the other was, I remember the uh, going to see Public Image the um the uh, Santa Monica Civic and that was amazing I remember seeing Minutemen at Santa Monica Civic and just all this stuff was and I was scared I didn't I didn't like hardcore shows I loved the music but I didn't like going to shows because I was I was a really scrawny kid I was you know like 60 pounds soaking wet and and uh and I didn't aside from a few really ill-advised dyeing my hair so blue it was black with that like powder cheap dye you buy it wasn't even liquid you know it was it was um and i never really dressed the part i just sort of was like a kid and so I, I i was running from the mosh pit anytime i went near the mosh pit i'd get hurt and so i didn't really like going to those hardcore shows as much and that's when i fell but i fell really 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 hardcore in about 83 what was called the cowpunk thing happened with lone justice long riders rank and file broke my brain uh, Chip Kinman has become a buddy through through this book, and I, he just those records just freaked me out because you know I, I heard I heard uh, Rank and File before I heard the Dills, and so I really went deep, deep, deep into all that stuff, and you know Beat Farmers, um, the Knitters, X's side uh, side band, like you know, the Flesh Eaters, just broke my mind. Like all these bands, I, I would see whoever, I would see anyone I could at, at that time, and it was. It was fantastic, man. It was like, I was in obviously not that first wave. I was in like third wave, but it became a community thing. You know, all your friends would go down and you'd wind up seeing the same people at the shows. And, you know, if I hung out in a big enough wolf pack, I felt a little safer going to the, the Civic. You just hear people going like, oh, I don't know. What, you don't know what you have till it's gone. Like, oh my God, I knew what it was. I was so, days were just wasted in between shows as far as I was considered. Yep. And, 
there's and there were certain shows we couldn't get into because we weren't old enough, and so we just go to the club. And we'd, uh, you know, I missed, I missed the mask. I missed, I caught a little bit of the cafe at the end. I missed most of the the, the legendary places. Those were all gone. But, then, but we'd go to some of these shows and I'd just hang outside, you know, even if it was like the Roxy or somewhere, the whiskey, and you just stand outside, just listening to the band through the walls. It was fantastic. It was funny when we were writing these books, I was nervous because about writing, because I don't really have the greatest memory, you know, as far as, I remember, I remember shows. I remember things, but I don't remember like when they happened chronologically. And I don't remember, you know, if this band played with this band at this show. So luckily one, I was able to call those aforementioned mods. I'm still in touch with them and they had real good memories. And so they were able to fill in a lot of the blanks. But one thing that tripped me out was I, um, you know, if, if I put on a, an X record now, or if I put on a Minutemen record now, it doesn't really trigger memories because I've listened to them so consistently through the years. But I was pulling out some some Black Flag records or some Blood on the Saddle records, say, that I just hadn't listened to in 20 years or so. And holy shit, man, it was bringing back the smell, the taste, the, and, I, and, and just triggering all these memories of, like, I'd look down, I'd see my shoes, and I'm like, oh, my God, I remember this. This was amazing. You know, and that's why I feel so bad for kids now that are that are in this pandemic. Because you know, when I was 15, 15 through like eighteen, that was ultimate endless summer. You know, that's all we were doing was seeing shows and listening to records and smoking weed. You know, it was fantastic. Wild Gift is the second studio album by American Rock Band X, released in March of nineteen eighty one by Slash Records. It was very well received critically and was voted the year's second best album in the Village Voices Paz and Jot Bowl, while GIF was later ranked at number 333 on Rolling Stone Magazine's list of 500 greatest albums of all time. Robert Criscow later ranked Wild GIF third on his personal best list for the 80s, the highest placing of any rock album. Under the Big Black Sun, his ex's follow-up to Wild GIF was released on Electra Records in July of 82. Both Under the Big Black Sun and Wild Gift were also produced by Ray Manzarek. And this is where I came in. I came into X. I don't really get exposed to X until the video for Hungry Wolf comes on. I, it must have been USA's Night Flight, although in the very early days of MTV, they played whatever videos they had. In the days before Billie Jean ruined the format, um, they would play Exit. They would play Hungry Wolf every once in a while. They would play Saxon, they would play Maiden, they would play all that British stuff that you mentioned, you know, jam videos. That's where, really where I started learning about that stuff, was MTV and Night Flight. We didn't really have the super uber cool record store in Albuquerque like you had, uh, Blue, Blue Meanie. By the time I get to college in 1986, I'm transitioning out of Judas Priest and into Husker Du. So my punk rock stuff was Midwest, The Replacements, Soul Asylum, Husker Du, you know, and then New York bands that would come to Chicago. Uh, you know, the Sonic Youth came to Chicago, of course. Pixies came to Chicago, of course. Um, and it was really easy to go to punk rock shows uh, in Chicago. But I was that's a, a long-winded way for me to say, when I knew I was moving to Los Angeles and I got here in the fall of 1990, I could not wait to go to all of those places that I grew up 
seeing in movies and television and reading about in Spin and Rolling Stone. I couldn't wait to go to the whiskey. I couldn't wait to go to the Roxy. I couldn't wait to eat at the Rainbow, go to the bar at the Rainbow to see Lemmy. You know, when I get here, there's an ex- we're in the early days of Nirvana. There's, there's a, you know, I see Urge Overkill at the Palace right away. Um, the Lemonheads at the Palace. Um, so many of my favorite bands. Sonic Youth played the whiskey. It's, it's just always been a thrill for me to see some of my favorite bands um, in those historic places because they're all haunted by good ghosts. Yep. Do you know what I mean? They, there's yep. so much history. If you're a rock nerd like me, you just know all the details. I couldn't wait to go to Gazzari's uh, because I'd seen it in Decline of Western Civilization Part 2, even though in the fall of 1990s, Gazzari is just super cheesy. It's nothing but hair metal. It's not cool anymore. But I, you know, I, I went to all those places as soon as I got here. We saw Soul Asylum at the Country Club in Reseda. We saw Fishbone at the Country Club in Reseda. It wasn't the heyday like you got, but it was still fun to go to those places. So, you know, that's a, no, uh, so no. I'm je- it's a, it's, it's another long way of saying I'm, I'm jealous of your experience. <laughs> well, you said one thing, another thing we have in common, my actual favorite X album is under the big black sun. Okay. The first one I got was wild gift, but I, I was saying there's, there's a small handful of songs. I, I speak about this frequently. There's a small handful of songs that have the exact same effect on me. And it, when I hear them now, as they did the first time and hungry wolf is one of those songs. When I heard that, I had not heard anything like that. I had not heard any, I mean, I mean, just DJ. It's, you know, just the, and the way John just comes growling in on that song. That literal take your breath away moment when that song came out. And it was literally, it was sort of, you know, we had a similar thing too. You mentioned Michael, when, when we all saw Michael Jackson moonwalk for the first time, everyone ran to school. It was like, do you guys see him? It was magic. You know, it's like that same sort of thing when, when, when Hungry Wolf came out. And we were all starting to hear it. It was literally like that. It was like, oh my God, have you guys heard that? And I, I I just think it's such a testament to those, you know, those first four X records specifically, but that those records still have that that effect. And I still see them having that effect on people. And and my experience and your experience, what I love about this is so not unique. And I think that's fucking brilliant. Yes. When, when we were on this book tour and I ran into every doppelganger you and I have, and it was like, you know, I read you because I wrote my little bits in the book were just like, I'm the kid who's, you know, 10, 15 younger than the rest of them. And I was fascinated and blah, blah, blah. And everyone our age was coming up going like I, that. I had that exact same experience no matter where I was because it was the music, but hungry wolf is one of those songs that literally, you know, and not sound completely corny about it. Absolutely takes my breath away. Every time I hear it in that same way as I did the first time I heard it in 82. It just does. It's just like not every song that album does. I love every song that album is, is my favorite X album, but that song, I can't explain it. It's like, you know, when you, you, you can sometimes, you know, something will make you you know, recall that feeling of just going, going over the top of a roller coaster and you kind of get that feeling in your chest, even though you're just on your couch and you're going like, oh, I can feel that. Or you, or you, or you have a panic attack. You know, it's like a panic attack. It's like that same sort of thing where you're just listening to it. And I literally can, you know, just even think about it. I get, Goosebumps! It, it, it that moment and that song in the in the corniest fuck all you haters out there. I'll say it anyway. It, that song changed my life. I feel the same way about "I Will Dare" by the Replacements. I feel the yep. same way about "Makes No Sense at All" by Husker Du. The other thing that I'm realizing as we're talking about this is, and I don't think I've ever really thought about this. 
the way that I listened to music when I was in school in Chicago, because mm-hmm. I started to dress like my favorite bands, and I couldn't dress like Tommy Stinson because I didn't have enough money to go get a cool like thrift store tuxedo jacket and wear creepers. <laughs> but I could dress like Paul because all you need is like a, a really shitty flannel and, and thrift store pants, and you're good to go. But that outfit allows me to go to um, Bogarts in Long Beach when I first move here to see Firehose and the Blake Babies, and I look like the crowd. You know what I mean? It's tribal. It's right. tribal, just like when I go to an Iron Maiden concert and I wear uh, a vintage Iron Maiden shirt. I know that 20 dudes are going to be like, hey, man, where'd you get that? That's fucking amazing. You know what I mean? So it's like it's the it's the uniform. It's the clothes we wear. It's the tribe that we sign up for, right. which is such a huge thing about music, the, the tribe that you go, this these are my people. You know, even though you're that kid in the country club and you're wearing, you know, an Argyle sweater from the May Company. You see your tribe. You you time traveled a little bit. You see what's going to become your tribe, which oh, is yeah. an incredible experience. Well, that that feeling of just knowing there's something else out there. There's something, yeah. you know. There was there was something. It was there was another world out there. It was you know. It was the other thing I used to do is I used to get lost in books, you know. And 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 it was like that. It was that feeling of of you know the through the looking glass thing and it's it's funny you said uh, one other thing i just got thrown real quick because in my day job i'm a music publisher and I, I work with this cat now and we became immediately fast friends um but because you mentioned lemon heads and blake babies john strom runs oh. random records for us and same age we're all in the same group and, and he and i literally you know we knew who each other was but when we started working together we became fast friends because it was literally like you love Linda on and punk rock. I love Linda on and punk rock. Let's talk about this. And, and, uh, but he had the same experience. So that's what I mean. He was an, another cat and we all sort of converged and you find your, you find your people and it's, and it really did. It, 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 it's just that, that moment, which, you know, that Helter Skelter did too. And, you know, various, you know, movies did along the way and various things, but it was a thing where you went like, Oh God, there is, there is something else, and I think I like it. And it's just kind of nice to know. And like I said, I wasn't one of those guys who went like, I mean, maybe I did a little bit, and I, you know, I certainly did. And I'll fight with you in your Rocktail show about some of the corporate rock shit I hate. But I had to hate some of that stuff. You know, I yes. had to hate Brush when I was a kid. I had to hate Journey when I was a kid. I had to hate Sticks when I was a kid. Still hate Sticks. Um, but, but it was because I liked it. I always said like I missed metal. Mm. I completely missed metal. And it was funny. What happened was because I was so there was a line in the sand at the time. And I'm like, I can't, you know, do that. And and I kept my sort of my 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 you know Ronstead and Beach Boys records sort of hidden away, you know, my Johnny Cash records, all those things that I didn't think were cool then. But um I didn't go see metal because I was they dressed different. It was sort of like you know, the Jets and the Sharks, the way I saw it. And and not that anybody gave a shit. But I just kind of like was like, okay, well, and I was hanging out with punks. And so. But you had, I will say this, you had, uh, there was a bigger smorgasbord of stuff here in Los Angeles. Yeah, but I saw a lot of shitty punk bands when I could have been seeing some great (laughs) metal bands. I never saw Motorhead in the day. Ah, okay. And it it kills me that they were arguably the greatest punk band. And it was funny. I, the band I missed completely, and this one's specifically for you, buddy, was was iron maiden and it was when i was about probably 22 23 years old my buddy joe fleischer who was punk metal did, did some time as the kid playing in the surf punks 
way before I ever met him. And um, we're good buddy of mine. He's like, you're just an asshole for not. I'm like, man, I didn't listen to metal. He's like, you got it. And he put on Maiden. And it was like, my my brain blew apart. And I'm like, how come no one told me about this? <laughs> well, they had, you know, they played they, one of their early clubs, the Roundhouse in London. You know, they, the punk bands played there. Maiden played there. It was there. punk rock. It yeah, was it was punk, punk rock. rock. It was, yeah. it, it well, was just, you know, they just, there was a little more leather, I guess. You know? Well, for me, the, I lucked out because in Albuquerque, New Mexico, there's only three cultures, white, Native American, and New Mexican. That's a, the Hispanic culture in New Mexico. Right. And metal rules the day there. Our Native American, I've said this on this podcast, I apologize to people who listen all the time, our Native American brothers love heavy metal. All those bands came to Albuquerque because when you're driving from Dallas to Los Angeles or vice versa, you might as well stop and make a couple bucks in Albuquerque because it's an instant sellout. They could start a tour in Albuquerque because it would be a sellout without any radio play. And I'm lucky, but that's all that there was. You know what I mean? There weren't other there weren't other shows. We didn't get the the big acts. So you know that's why. So my love of Maiden starts when they come on the Peace of Mind tour with Saxon, and my mind is blown. I would have killed this in those shows. Well, the last the last thing I'll say about that, and you make an interesting point about Motorhead. For me, the bridge the bridge from Maiden to the Replacements is the is built by the the Ramones and Motorhead. Their sort of kinship and their symbiosis, they create a nice little ice bridge for uh, p- metal pilgrims and punk pil- pilgrims to cross. And I remember when Vivian on The Young Ones, uh, the punk rock character on the British sitcom, had a Saxon shirt. And I was like, okay, the punk rock guy has a fucking Saxon shirt. So that's my favorite character on the show. All right, let me read a couple more things because... Tom and I could nerd out uh, until next Sunday. Jesus Christ almighty. (laughs) More fun in the new world is the fourth studio album by X. It was released in September of 83. Also on Electro Records. It was the last X album produced by Ray Manzarek. The single, The New World, appeared on the soundtrack to the 1986 movie, Something Wild. Pearl Jam has also covered The New World live several times. Ain't Love Grand was released in July of 1985. The album included the radio hit Burning House of Love, which the band performed on Dick Clark's American Bandstand in September of 85. That was their largest television exposure to date. The album also includes a cover of the Small Faces song, All or Nothing. The guitarist, Billy Zoom, left the band after this record, but thank God he eventually came back to the band. You know, the, you know the, the whole purpose of the show is not to be a deep dive into the history of X. Just like to have like little brush points so we could jump off and talk about Farrell's ice cream. And, <laughs> you know, talk about the palace, which should still be called the palace. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. But can you tell me anything about their appearance on Dick Clark's American Bandstand? Well, yes. It's funny. They were on there twice, actually. Um I, I, I believe they were on, I know they're on for, I don't know if it was twice in Ain't Love Grand. I think it was once on More Fun in the New World and once Ain't Love Grand. But Johnny told me that um, that Dick Clark had a little crush on Xene. <laughs> no band in the punk rock scene had as good musicians as X. I'll, I'll say that to anybody. They they're, had great musicians, soulful musicians, uh, musicians that were completely unique. But to have this sort of jazz drummer and I mean, and, and, and DJ and, and this, you know, just 
rockabilly, like firebrand in, in, in Billy Zoom. And Doe just is a really great vocalist and really great bass player. And then Exim coming in and fucking everything up in the way that created that band. This band, there's a lot of touchstones in rock and roll. I mean, Exim and John's favorite band was The Doors. You know, it was no accident that, you know, those connections were made. And so they should have been on bandstand, but it was weird at the time. It was an anomaly, you know, but but they were they were just they were rock and roll, and and thankfully they had I, rank and file was on too. There's a few bands the Go Go's were on. They dipped their toe into that, but the fact that X was on not once but twice is pretty amazing. And 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 a lot of people that I've talked to, that's how again I knew about X because I lived in Los Angeles, and you were just aware of them. If you got the LA Times, you knew who they were. If you were you know, if you had, yeah, if if your if your buddy had a big brother, you knew who this band was. But there was a lot of a lot of bands that figured out that they who X was through David Letterman and through you know uh, American Bandstand. So God bless Dick Clark, man. Way to go, it, kids! By the way, you can see it. It's on YouTube. I mean, yeah. it's a little grainy footage, but but you got to go watch it. Um, yeah, dude. My brain, I'm like that Fred Armisen character on Saturday Night Live. He's like, the thing, you, the thing that you have to understand about Los Angeles, see, when you have a, a city, um, okay, it's like this. Um, sometimes there are musicians and they live over here. Well, you know, the thing about Sherman Oaks that's so um, really incredible. I mean, my, my mind is going right. at one billion <laughs> miles an hour. I have so many questions for you, but we're going to round third base here and wrap this up so that I can bring you back for another uh, round Which because I know the listeners. Well, we could do a uh, Linda. <laughs> the fact that you were at that Linda Ronstadt show, that legendary Linda Ronstadt show at the universal amphitheater in the Cub Scout outfit. I mean, that is, that's my jealousy is at, is at 11 right now. It was like a 15 night run or something. I remember seeing all the nights. It was, it was the most it played there. And the fact that my brother gave his nine or 10 year old brother a beer a small beer, which I drank and I was just shit faced. So, so yeah. I, and my brother and I are very close. So I thank him for all, all the, all the bad things happened in my life, all the good, bad things. Well, I'm, I'm so mad that they tore that place down to build Harry I'm, Potter yeah. world because it was one of the best places to see Maiden, <laughs> the universal fucking amphitheater. Yep. Is there any last thing that you want to say about X? Yeah. That they, they released an album last year called alphabet land and it was their first album in, I don't know, 27 years, 35 years. I forget what the, the number is. It's a fucking great punk rock record. So that's my final word. Everyone should hear it. Fat Possum. Fat Possum had the good sense to sign them and put this record out. So, And they have the old X records now, too. Okay, so, so let me just say this. Uh, my hope for the future is that you, me, and our very good friend, Mr. Rich Jeltinga, will get to go see X together. I do uh, love it. Because I love nothing more than going to see shows with Richard and Amit, and we've had so much fun. Uh, I cannot believe that it's been a year. Our last show together was Kiss and David Lee Roth at the Staples Center. We had no idea what was coming down the pike. I was supposed to go to that because I'd never seen Kiss. <laughs> and you got to do so, but instead, my buddy Matt Messer went down and took my seat. You might have met my buddy Matt that night. Okay, that's incredible. Wow. Okay. It's a teeny yeah. tiny world. So what X song can Mr. Richard Sheltinga play us out with tonight? Ooh, the have nots. Done and done. Sir, 
Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Man. Thank that you. was really fun. It's good. To, it's good to get to talk to a, to a to a to a nice lad over over the Zoom. And we, both, <laughs> and we both have our pants on. I am wearing a bathing suit, so let go, go that way. Okay, I cannot wait to do it again. And to the rest of you, thank you so much for listening, liking, subscribing, telling your friends. Got so many great shows coming down the pike, and of course, as always, the Brando Cast is produced by Mr. Richard. Shell Tinga. So until the next time, cats and kittens. Drink.